So first of all, I feel like uh, I am a part of the community. And one of the reasons why I feel like that is because you all really were living out biblically that they gave to one another as they had need. And so I talked about the coldness, and there was a, a, a brother who hooked me up. Now, it may not flow with the colors and everything, but I don't care when your head is cold, you are thankful. But I'm thankful that this is a community to where you all will meet needs when you hear of a need. Matter of fact, I have a car that I need some things. Uh, so if anyone is so led, uh, it would be great. But thank you very much for helping a brother out. It is good, especially on these cold days. Now, this is where I also know that Grant and I are very different because he is just saying how it is so beautiful, uh, the, the fog. And, and I'm like, beautiful? This is creepy. I mean, uh, I, I had lunch with a dear covenant brother, I mean, breakfast this morning. We were driving down the mountain, and he didn't know it, but I'm in the car, white-knuckling it, going, oh, my God, I can't see where we're going. Wow. But this is an amazing place. And I, I wonder if it's this way, because our conference is the Imago Dei, the image of God. It's almost as if the image of God, we, we try to contain it and you really can't. For me, when I think of the image of God, I think in many ways, here. here. If you if have you not have had, had a chance, chance to listen to, listen to the soundtrack, to the soundtrack of, Hamilton. of Hamilton, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't, didn't just listen to the soundtrack. To the soundtrack. It was, it was uh, uh, again, a Broadway, Broadway play. play. My, My wife, wife and I, and I some I friends. Uh, uh, God, God, this is where I know there's a guy. We had we tickets, had and we saw, we the, saw original the original cast. cast. Oh, 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 you're gonna, you're you're gonna, gonna scream gonna even more. There's gonna be even more hateration for me because we had second row seats. Yes, listen, I'm telling you, it was incredible. I mean, this is this is one of the first Broadway plays where I still will play the soundtrack, and the remix is incredible as well too. But I'm but not I'm throwing not away my, my shot. shot. Yo, I'm just, just like, like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my, my shot. shot. I mean, it's just incredible. But here's what's so beautiful about it. I never thought I'd see George Washington as a black man. I never thought that, again, Aaron Burr, a black man. Alexander Hamilton, Lindell Well, Miranda. It was, it was so, so mixed, mixed up and confusing, and but it but worked. It worked. Why? Why? Because there's because something, there's something unique, unique and strange and beautiful, and beautiful that God has God wired us when we're created in his image. To where we where get a we chance, get chance to do things, things with art, art and imagination. imagination. That's the, the only way you can, can explain, explain it. it. Sure, sure Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda is a genius but so there's, there's something, something incredibly, incredibly supernatural, supernatural about, about taking the story of the founding of the fathers and hip-hop hip -hop and bringing it together and making it work. work. Well, that's well, always been true. true. You know, even, even when you have a, have a chance, chance to see Michelangelo, Michelangelo in the 16th, in the 16th chapter, chapter, 
I mean, this image, uh, again, you know the context of this image because it's not just this. This is a part of the incredible Sistine Chapel and, and, and you, the story, you ought to just read the story of what it took and, and the pain and the sacrifice. And, and sometimes the only way you can explain this kind of beauty really is this connection, this incredible connection with the image of God, that, that it really is amazing that God would allow humans to be able to demonstrate who he is, and we get these glimpses that, that we must be created in the image of God. Well, I've got another dear friend in California who we were out at a conference together and met, uh, Cameron Moberg. And if you've never heard of Cameron Moberg, Cameron Moberg is a graffiti artist and an incredible graffiti artist. I mean, unlike anyone that I've ever seen, uh, a, a believer who understands the marketplace, but Cameron Moberg, he, he's taken what Michelangelo did on the 16th chapel and he put it on the walls of the world that we're here in today. That's the Imago Day. That's the image of God. It's this, it's this incredible connection that we have that, that happens through what we think is ordinary, but in many ways it's incredibly beautiful. But you can't get to the image of God without truth. You, you, you can't get to what it means to be created in his image until you come to grips with truth. We see that all throughout the life of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, you, you begin to see that, that this idea that the, the, the image of God, that the truth of the matter is, is that absolutely in order for the image of God to really be true in us, we must be redeemed, we must be restored. And that really is what Jesus has done. That really when you look at his story, when he heals the leper, he's, he's letting us know that the image of God is even in those who have leprosy. That's why Jesus was always making these incredible connections connections with unexpected people who had unexpected problems, who we would say is a waste, but no, they're image bearers, and you begin to see the image of God in these truthful moments. One of the most incredible stories for me when we talk about this connection in order to see the image of God and this idea that you will not see it without truth is in John chapter 4. And in John, and John chapter, chapter 4, 4 John, John chapter, chapter 4, which is so interesting to me, is that there's this story that has been told so many times that I think we've missed sometimes parts of the story. But, but this is a story where it becomes real important for you to know a little bit about the context. And because of our time, I don't have time to, to unwrap all of this for you. But you need to know this is a story between Jesus and a person who really is this person he really shouldn't have been connected to in light of the cultural story, in light of history. Was Jesus and the Samaritan woman? And, and what's interesting is when you go to the Old Testament, you realize that her story was a complex one because the Samaritans were this group of people who were hated because they came from a mixed race of when they were Jewish people who had been overtaken by these Assyrians, and I'm simplifying this, and after they lived for a hundred or so years, they ended up intermarrying, and you have this breed of people called the Samaritans who really were half-breed Jews in many ways, even to the point to where they maintained some of the same religious similarities 
similarities. The fact that Samaritans, uh, again, worshipped and they believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but, but they believed in different places of worship. And when you read the story in John chapter 4, you begin to see that. And so they sort of came up with their own thing, but, but Jewish people hated Samaritans, even though they were connected to them technically. Let me read for you a portion of the story, and we're going to walk through this. And you're going to need to read it yourself because I don't have time to, to dive too deep, but there's just a couple things I want you to see. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees had, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink when I'm a woman from Samaria? And then there's commentary. It's in parentheses in most of our translations. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. And look, the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself as he did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water that will well up in eternal life. And the woman said to him, hook a sister up then. Uh, my translation, sorry. So, so give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But when you look at this story, it's, it's almost as if Yes, notice here in that one verse it says Jesus had to go to Samaria. And, and the original language is even stronger than that. There's this intentionality. And part of the reason for that is because culturally Jews did not walk in Samaritan neighborhoods. Now we know that Jesus is doing something that, that really, uh, that's why no story is wasted. But have you ever noticed that there was always something with Samaria? that Jesus is trying to make sure that people understand and making a connection, the truth. Isn't it fascinating that, that, that the story that he would use to explain how God works is the story of the Good Samaritan? That the lepers who were healed, that they came back, and the one who came back and gave thanks was a Samaritan. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and... I notice a, a, a PCA school, but you can speak a little louder than that. And then the other most parts of the earth. You ever notice the Samaritan theme just keeps coming up 
And we see this here. Why? Because there's this intentionality. Can I just say this? First of all, if we're going to make critical connections and seeing the image of God, and especially when it means to be connected with one another, it will require intentionality. But I think John is writing this here in John chapter 4 because Jesus has integrity that we often do not have. Because if you're going to say, for God so loved the world that he gives his only begotten son, if you're going to say that to Nicodemus, Jesus is going to live that out by having to go through Samaria. But I look at how he goes. Notice what it says here in, in verse 5 and 6, that, that the place where he shows up was Jacob's well, Jacob's well who was there. Here's what I love about Jesus when he's confronting and dealing with the truth. He goes and he finds a place of common ground because the Samaritans respected the father Jacob. So that the Jews respect the father Jacob. See, when it comes to the image of God and who we are connected together, you know what, there is common ground. As different as we might think that we might be from people who are different from us, there is common ground that we all have. Jesus shows up in the place of common ground. But here's the other thing that I love about Jesus that's very different as to how he went. Notice what the Bible says in verse 6. It says, and Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well about the sixth hour. Here's what I love about Jesus. When Jesus does make a connection, he makes a connection by being fully human. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I've got a Jesus that gets tired. See, when we make a connection, and all too often we so misread Jesus because we put Jesus in our American heroic appeal. The Christ of Scripture is so ordinary, he gets tired. Do you know that the Christ of Scripture had to go to the bathroom? Do you know that? Yeah, I know. It's this mind-blowing. Jesus is tired. You know what I love? He makes a connection from his humanness. Sometimes when we make connections, we think, okay, here we are to save the day. And we go Peter Pan, which just looks gawky and weird. Do you have a Savior that gets just as tired? Because there's something about tiredness that he's now in this situation where he is vulnerable. Not the way some mission movements are, that we come with all the answers. Jesus comes. This was so incredible. Even though he knows he, he's the only one who can meet her need, Jesus is real enough to let her know that he has a need. Why does he, by the way, I say he has a need? Because in verse 7, here's what he does. Give me a drink. I'm thirsty. Wouldn't that change the way we do missions? is if we didn't go to places because we think somehow we've got the solution for them, but if we go knowing that we have a need, wouldn't that change the way we engage with people who are different than us? Can you imagine what the image of God would look like is if you decided to go and serve in a community that didn't have some of the economic needs that you have, not because you somehow are the solution, but because you have a need. I have a Jesus who is tired and Thirsty. Man, I can pray and have a connection with a Christ like that. He needed a drink. Guess what else that means he's going to do? Here's what else that means he's going to do. He asked her for a drink. How does he engage in a truthful way? He says, uh, give me something to drink. Now, you got to understand, she does not have a whole host of glasses. That means he's willing 
to put his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup. That means he's willing to break the cultural norms of the other. So when we talk about this idea of truth, how far are we willing to go? And she even acknowledges something that becomes real important for you to understand and to see. Notice what happens here. Because notice what blew her mind, verse 9. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So now I want you to hear me real quickly, and I want you to hear me with this. Here's what I love about Christ. Here's what I love about Jesus and I love about the Bible. The Bible is not colorblind. Jesus does not roll up in there going, what's up? He doesn't try to play any kind of Samaritan. He doesn't want to hide and say, you know, she's not going to know I'm Samaritan, so I'm going to play Samaritan. I got to change the way I dress. I got to change. So, you know, because I'm going in a Samaritan neighborhood, you got to flow Samaritan up in here. No, 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 no. He is fully Jew. She sees you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. He understands. He does not avoid the historical distinction. One of the things that frightens me is we have this idea that we have got to be colorblind because God is colorblind. No, when I read my Bible, God is not colorblind. There's no such thing as being colorblind or culturally blind. You see that in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, that's the beauty of scripture. And before you take me to say, oh, I'll be so glad when we get to heaven to where color won't matter. Are you kidding me? You better read your Bible. You better read Revelation. It says around the throne, it says there'll be people there from every ethnos. That's right. The image of God that he's created you in, when you get to heaven, we all are not going to be the same color. We're going to be who God has created us. And it is going to be difficult for me around the throne because I know there's going to be some country southern gospel music around the throne, and I'm going to struggle. There's going to be hip-hop. There's going to be jazz. There's going to be people there expressing. That's the beauty. The beauty of heaven is not that we all are going to be the same, but the beauty of heaven is, is that we're different. Jesus here encounters her with her difference. But maybe in America, we think that we've got to be colorblind because race has been one of the most distorted things in the Imago Dei. Do you know who this is? This is a gentleman from a Supreme Court case, Ozawa versus the United States, 1922. Let me read for you a little bit about this Supreme Court case. Ozawa was born in Japan on June 15, 1875, and he immigrated to San Francisco in 1894. As a schoolboy, he worked his way through various schools and graduated from Berkeley High School in California. He attended the University of California for three years in 1906, and when he moved to Honolulu and settled down, he was fluent in English, he practiced Christianity, and he worked for an American company. He was married to a Japanese woman who was educated in the U.S., not Japan, with whom he had two children. In his own legal brief, he said this. Here was his argument. 
His argument was, in order to be considered an American citizen, here was his argument. That's what the Supreme Court case was all about. He says this, he says, my skin is as white or as whiter than the average Caucasian. But more importantly, he underscored his personal beliefs. My honesty and industriousness are well known among my Japanese and American friends. In the name of Benedict Arnold, who was an American, but at heart he was a traitor. In name, I am not an American, but in heart, I am a true American. He wrote, in every sense of the word, I am a model citizen if being fully assimilated was the test. What was he trying to do? Because they said that, Mr. Ozawa, you are not American because you're not white. And he was trying to prove. Because you understand that in our history, in order to assimilate, we decided even from the Supreme Court, we had laws and everything, that the goal is to become white. Hence, it's interesting because in everyone's narrative, in the narrative of the Scottish, in the narrative of the Irish, if you really begin to study all of what went in New York, all immigrants who came here had problems coming here. Uh, what happened with the Poles, what happened in northern cities and some of the industrial things that we did was atrocious. But here's the difference. The goal is to become white. Because when you become white, you can be American. I wonder if that slipped in to us when we say colorblind. Do we really mean colorblind or is it that we need to become white? I wonder if when we go to heaven, what you really think you're going to see are white people. I wonder if that's all the same that we think it's going to be. And listen, if you think that, understand, we are at a disadvantage, especially for those of us who are conservative and for those of us who are evangelical, myself, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, because if you look through most of the textbooks that you study, the people who have written them are white. If you go to a Christian bookstore, most of the authors are white. If you think about church fathers and theology that has shaped us, most of the people are white. If you think about who's teaching you and who's been your educational reality here at Covenant College, almost everybody is white. If you went to a Christian school and coming here, probably I guarantee you most of your teachers are white. You know what you might think? You might think that the ideal of educational intellectual achievement, the ideal of godliness is for someone who is white because we all know the best Bible teachers again. Most of them are white. Oh, I know, you know Thabiti Anyabule, but of course he's an exception. Sure, you can say Eric Mason, but of course he is an exception. Anthony, oh, absolutely, Dr. Evans, he's one of my favorite. He is an exception, but what is the rule? The rule might simply be, we might think the way America thought that again, in order to exceed, the goal is to become white. But Jesus, he deals with this in this story in a way that goes beyond that. But he does it truthfully. Notice how he gets to the truth. And I'm going to have to go through this, and you'll have to read it yourself. She says, first of all, sir, you don't have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get the water from? Uh, you're not greater than our father Jacob. You can't change history. You can't do anything any different. Here's what Jesus says. I love Jesus. He says, 
Uh, you drink from here, you're going to thirst again, but I've got something to where you will never thirst. In other words, I can put in you a, a faucet so you don't have to come back here again. And the woman said, okay, give it to me then. I love Jesus. He gets the truth. Verse 16. Uh, go call your husband and come here. Now, all of a sudden, she stops talking as much. The woman answered, I have no husband. Her, 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 her answers get short now. Jesus said to her, you're right saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said to me is true. See, if we're going to make a connection, you all, I know that was uncomfortable what I just said, but one of the beauties of the gospel, one of the beauties of Christian people is we get to the truth. Jesus goes to the truth, to the uncomfortable truth. He says, you're right, you have no husband. You got that right, but you've had five husbands. As a matter of fact, the one you have now is not your husband. Jesus, you just met her. Man, do you really have to go there? But he goes there in a way that is more sensitive than what you and I could ever imagine because he could have talked about that in the very beginning. But he's even said, you've had five husbands. Now, this is where you got to understand background because understand, I often look at this and people want to play this woman like she was some loose woman, couldn't get relationships right. But in this time period, a woman couldn't divorce a man. That means she's possibly been rejected five times. And so she's given up on relationships to the point where she said, no more marriage stuff because I've already been rejected. Jesus exposes the truth. Sometimes, you all, if we really want to deal with his image, if we want to make that connection, it will be True. She's trying to escape it, though. Look at what she does here. Uh, she says, okay, the woman said, verse 19, the woman said, mm, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place to worship. Uh, where should people ought to worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain or that mountain is where you're going to worship. Uh, you worship that which you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here that when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So let me tell you, she tries to escape the truth. Have you ever met people, when you get real close to the truth, they turn into a religious conversation? All of a sudden, she gets real spiritual. When it got uncomfortable, what did she go, okay, but what about the sovereignty of God? Oh, I wonder, uh, Jesus, great. Well, if I had five husbands, but if God is sovereign, then did he intend for me? And so she's trying to duck now with this spiritual conversation. Uh, she said, okay, well, Jesus, great. Let's get off the husband thing. Let's get off that. Now let's get to, okay, where's the real place of worship? And Jesus doesn't play it. He tells her the truth. He's very honest. He says, you know, first of all, you all say Mount Gerizim, and we say the place is Jerusalem. But the real place of worship, and this is so incredible to me what he says, true worshipers, verse 23, is those who worship in spirit and truth. Here's what I want you to understand. If we're going to deal with issues of God's image, and I know it's uncomfortable whenever we talk about our connections with one another, but here's where real worship is. Real worship is not in a place. Real worship is in a person. 
And it's not until we say spirit and truth. Spirit, it's the will, it's the internal world. It is not until I can honestly say, yes, in spirit, I can tell the truth though, because internally, yes, it is painful the truth of our past. It is painful some of the things that we've done. But if I'm gonna worship God, here's what God wants, people who worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about necessarily that we get more people to come to this place. It's not necessarily that the starting point is, man, maybe we could just get some more people of color here at Covenant College, or maybe we could have a church that's more multi-ethnic. No, the real goal, though, does not begin there if you're not telling the truth. Is this a campus and a community of believers where we can have real truth and spirit? That's what God is looking for. God ain't looking for people who run away from the conversation of black lives matter with saying, okay, now all lives matter and we nullify the conversation. God is looking for people who say, no, 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 no. Let's get to the truth of this, but we worship him because he wants that internal reality, not a false colorblind reality. He wants people who will be color brave, color bold, but then color biblical, but he wants people as well who understand that we're color blessed. Here's why, because we can worship in spirit this community ought to be having some of the most truthful conversations that's where real worship happens real worship happens when yes I live in a country that has an atrocity that is painful but there's a God who died on the cross and I can deal with that but that is the truth and now we can really worship real worship happens that yes when I go down to Chattanooga and when I run walk around this city there are places where historically I could not go but now I can eat in those places that's real worship it's in spirit and truth and Jesus says I'm looking for people who can worship me in spirit and truth. I'm looking for people who will be able to say to Jack Nicholson as he says from the chair, you can't handle the truth. Yes, we can. We can handle it because the cross is truth. He looks for worshipers whose spirit and truth. And that's why Jesus says, okay, well tell me when Messiah is coming, Jesus says, Girlfriend, here I am. I am he. I am truth. So this morning, if we're really going to live into the Imago Day, his image, truth, before we can make a connection. But how is that truth exposed? Not in a brutal way, but in a gentle way. Are you willing to be thirsty with me? Can we both be hungry together? Can, can we gently come into conversation knowing that, you know what, maybe I, the one who has all the privilege, need to come and say, I'm thirsty too. Would you not do any more mission trips or do anything in quote-unquote the inner city? And be careful of your sociological terms because they don't fit anymore because the inner city now has become much more prosperous than it's ever been before, and now people are being displaced. So, so much of our language doesn't even work anymore. But can we be that generation that engages people from our knees saying, I'm coming here to this place not because I have so much to give, but I'm coming because it's something I can receive from you.
Can we begin journeying, though, with truth? You are beautifully white. You come from privilege, some of you. Now, all of you don't. Some of you come from poverty, and you, you get angry that some of us say that all white people had privilege. No, no, some of it is a little bit more nuanced than that. But don't be ashamed of that. You are PCA. You gotta, some of you come from churches that are white, white. Don't be ashamed of that. Some of you are people who come from a different ethnic group. Don't be ashamed of that. God has beautifully created you as to who you are. But then it will require truth. Even the truth that we don't want to talk about. But real worship is spirit and truth. And I don't know about you, but I'm hoping that this is a place that has a reputation of real worship. I'm hoping that this mountain becomes a place where there are people who are known for worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. I'm hoping that this becomes a place where people will be willing to go to Samaria, places other people will not go. Truth, if we're going to make there's critical connections. Because that's the image of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. Let me pray for us. Father, what's so incredible is after this conversation, this woman whose life was filled with shame, this woman who went to the well when probably no one else would be there at noontime. This woman who, when she meets the Messiah, she says, come see a man who told me all that I've done. And the whole community said, well, if he's told her everything, then man, I want to go meet this man. And we know the rest of the story. Some disciples were still uncomfortable. But this woman is now set free to say, come see Jesus. She's made this connection with who you really are, the one who's restored her image. Father, I pray that you would help this community to be a community of leaders. Lord, we indeed would come see the one who has told us all about us. The truth, the beautiful truth, that you died on the cross and rose again for the dead for You are him, we are in you. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, all the thirsty people said, amen.